warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism with Scott and with Stephen. Good morning, sir. Morning, mate. How are you doing? Not so bad. We've got, <laughs> it's probably evident as we start this podcast, Skype is playing up. It's the Sunday morning curse of Skype. I don't know what's going on here at the moment, but let's see how we go. This week is your choice. We're going to go straight. <laughs> we're going to go straight into this. We're going to go straight in. It's yeah. your, your choice this week. Bit of a change of pace. Historical drama. I don't think we've really covered, apart from the Wicked Lady, which was more of a historical romp. This is serious stuff. We're on. Yeah, it's serious stuff. It's treatment of of somebody's life. It's meant to be, you know, it's big budget, and it's actually um, trying to show their life without any fluff or um, overly. It's just trying to to do this serious historical treatment, and it's you know an Oscar Oscar winner as well. Yeah, is this our first Best Picture winner? I think it may be. Um, I think it could well be. Yeah, yeah, because there weren't. Um, many... I don't believe that not normal wisdom ever got. Any <laughs> um, no should certainly have been nominated. <laughs> yeah, but it's not till sort of. Um, I'm just trying to think. Like Oliver will count as a British movie. A couple of years later. Chariots of Fire, I suppose, in the eighties. Before we start getting to, you know, some British Oscar winners, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's Man for All Seasons, nineteen sixty-six. We'll be back after this. From the unforgettable award-winning play comes the best picture of the year, starring the best actor of the year. Moy, you have been found guilty of high treason. The sentence of the courts. My is... lords, when I was practicing law, the manner was to ask the prisoner before pronouncing sentence if he had anything to say. Have you anything to say? Yes. Honored by six Academy Awards. A man for all seasons. anything to say to me regarding the king's marriage with Queen Anne? I understood I was not to be asked that again. Then evidently you understood wrongly. These charges... Tell us for children, Master Secretary. Not for me. <laughs> A man for all seasons. 
winner of six Academy Awards, including Best Actor, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Picture of the Year. Is it dangerous to know? I don't know me. I do know you. I mean as a friend. I am your friend. I wish I wasn't, but I am. Sir Thomas! Sir Thomas! Paul Schofield, hailed as Best Actor of the Year for his performance as Thomas Moore. Wendy Hiller as the woman behind the man. Leo McKern as Cromwell, the conspirator. Robert Shaw as the lusty King Henry VIII. What does he mean? You know? Ah, your grace? Spare me your discretion. He's been to play in the muck again. Orson Welles as Cardinal Wolsey. And Susanna York as the daughter torn between love and loyalty. Margaret! What is it, Meg? Father, there's a new act going through Parliament. Oh? By this act, they're going to administer an oath about the marriage. On what compulsion is the oath? High treason. Man for All Seasons, released in the UK, 1966. Directed, surprisingly, by Fred Zinnemann, which we will talk about. Written by Robert Bolt, based on his play, starring Paul Schofield, Wendy Hiller, Robert Shaw as Henry VIII. There's also Wells in a cameo, and another cameo by Vanessa Redgrave as well. Um, Blink and You'll Miss Her, there's Youth of Joyce, and... John Hurt for the second time in as many podcasts. He's back. Um, quickly, as custodian of the Village Hall of Fame, I don't think we've got any entries into the Hall of Fame this time uh, around. No, we've got um, seven people who are making second appearances. <laughs> I love the uh, way that you actually do the research. I, I love and, you for it. <laughs> and, we've, and we've got one person who's making a fifth appearance. Who's the fifth? Um, Martin Body, our body. Um, no. He's been in and Seven Days to Noon, Carry On Sergeant, Bedazzled and Carry On Nurse. So I, 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 I don't even recognise him, let alone the name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he must be up there with um, with, with, with the Hickson. Hickson. <laughs> Give yeah. us the synopsis, mate. When a highly respected British statesman, Sir Thomas More, refuses to pressure the Pope into annulling the marriage of King Henry VIII and his Spanish-born wife, More clashes with the monarch. A devout Catholic, Mo stands by his religious principles and moves to leave the royal court. Unfortunately, the king and his loyalists aren't appeased by this and press forward with grave charges of treason, further testing Mo's resolve. So it's it's a piece about people standing up to that for their principles, really. Um, yeah, in yeah, the ultimate sort of sacrifice as well. Second time I've watched this in the last 12 months. Right. 
and it's only the second time. I watched it for the first time about a year ago. It's one of those gaps in my Oscar-winning watching history, you know. So I thought, oh, I've got to watch that one. And I think I mentioned this when you revealed what this was going to be. On my first watch, I didn't really enjoy it. I, I struggled with it. It was a bit too heavy for me. Right Now, this is from somebody that loves Shakespeare, Shakespeare adaptations on the screen. I'm used to adaptations of plays in big movie, you know, big movie productions. And my first viewing, it was just a bit too much. I thought, oh, there's too much going on. A bit too stagey, a bit too wordy. Looking forward to giving it a second go this week. I enjoyed it more this time. More. I enjoyed it more. Yeah, we're going to say this <laughs> this time round. But I still didn't love it. I know you've probably seen this before for you to bring this to the table. It's not a first time watch for you. I mean, is it, is it a particular favourite of yours? No, it's not. I mean, it's one that I've seen over a decade ago, probably at least 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I remembered it having quality to it mm. in um in a number of ways and it being big budget and yeah. etc but um i didn't remember much more about it and mm. i thought you know it, it was time to fill a gap as far as going you know historical um sort of biography and and i felt this one was was one that's got a good reputation mm. to it and i had seen it before and and not remembered it as being complete and utter tosh. No, no, so, no. I'm not saying it's uh, so a bad thought, film. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, so I thought we'll bring it to the table. And um, from my viewing of it this time round, um, I think I, I looked at it with a more critical eye. Yeah. And um, although there's there's many things worthy about it, as you know, performances and a certain amount of of the direction and and you know cinematography and stuff. Essentially, I think that it's just. A bit flat, really. It, it mm. it's it's got no real peaks in it of of, of excitement. It's just there isn't, of, is there? That's it the just it just carries on through with the story without there being any anything to to raise interest at any point. Mm. It's just kind of a, a monotone. It's a um, lot of lot of two headers in this. Yeah, a lot of dialogue just between two people, which is evident of its stage roots. And the acting is superb. You cannot fault Robert Shaw's performance. Paul Schofield is fantastic. All the supporting cast act their socks off. John Hurt is particularly good in this. Yes. Orson Welles, for the for the minute that he's in the movie, dressed as a huge red tomato, you know. Because <laughs> that's what he looks like. He was, yeah. Um, in the Cardinal's robes, he's just... Uh, and he's, he's so bloated, you think, at any point he's going to explode. Especially when he keeps puffing out his cheeks and, yeah. and, and breathing out, you think, this is it. This is the bit where he's going to do gonna the uh, uh, meaning of life bit where he just explodes because he's had one weapon too many. But even then, you know, you, you can't deny... The quality of the cast, the cinematography, superb, you know, beautiful colours, beautiful sort of landscapes and good use of like historic houses and locations and the river. It's just lacking something. And it was the best picture winner of that year. We're going to go and have a little look at what it was up against in a second as well. But I'm not saying it's a bad movie. You can't. You can't deny, as I say, that the quality is there. I was just a little bit disappointed, even second time round when I was aware of what I was letting myself in for. So I was a bit prepared for the pace of it. I was a bit more prepared. 
as to where the film was going to go because I was totally oblivious to the story first time round. I knew historically about Sir Thomas More vaguely, you know, and it's it's a major major part of British history, isn't it? This it's it's the part where Henry VIII declares himself head of the Anglican Church, which yeah, simply so he can knob off with somebody else that he's not married to, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, put it in a in a technical term. And that's yeah. that's mainly because, due to sheer bad luck and and the quality of sort of the maternity system in Tudor times, he was without a son. So that that's the whole crux of the story here. And Thomas More, being a devout Catholic, stood up for his principles and basically lost yeah. his head. Yeah, for yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's, as, as you say, it's an important story in historically mm. and it's maybe just not the most exciting story it's, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 um i mean you know we've gone through many there's many films out there that deal particularly with the legal system mm. and and people's moral dilemmas over things and usually the, the you're feeling more the tension of the stakes and also the your the the system as far as going through some kind of court action or interrogations or or the peril that is existing is a lot does create more excitement and interest in it but i think in this situation unfortunately there's a it's it's like he as a character he's resigned to his 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 fate from a certain point and it's just going through the motions until the inevitable um conclusion of him losing his life and it doesn't necessarily make for an exciting film and or, or necessarily uh, one that's got tension and and um i mean okay we already know that he you know he's not going to prevail yeah. but how it comes to the conclusion it seems to be just a, a matter of steps going through rather than there being any real fight to him trying to fight against this it is the thing. Him, you know this is the thing there's no real argument to him because his defence is well if I remain silent I can't be accused of anything and and that just seems like a really flat way of of going forward any other courtroom drama would have argument and counter argument and and witnesses being brought in but he's not like there's, there's one point where he talks to Wendy Hiller his wife and says you can honestly say if you're brought up before a jury that I have never mentioned this before and it's it's just this whole, as I say, very flat defence that he's got. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, the, the performances are fantastic. The cinematography is, you know, the the actual dialogue in in individual scenes is, you know, is, is very well done. It's yeah. of the period and actually, you know, has intelligence to it. But as a as a whole, the film, although the storyline is has got importance to it. It's not necessarily the the most exciting. I mean, it's two hours long as well. This film, and I, yes. I believe that from the play, they've cut out some pieces yes, that relate to um, mm. um, the Spanish ambassador and stuff, which oh, may right. have made things a bit more exciting. There might have been some bit more court intrigue and excitement in in that sense. Um, but as it is, maybe they've. they've They've neutered it a bit by taking some elements out and, yeah. and keeping maybe some less um, imaginative or, or interesting bits in. And the story doesn't excite, unfortunately, despite its importance. The performances, though, I mean, we can get talk about those, yeah. which are 
uh, uh, just make they do make it worthy of being a classic in the in the terms of of you know being noted as a film in British cinema. Um, even if the rest of you know the actual plot or sort of scene setting doesn't actually work, the actual performances do warrant us having a discussion about the film. I think. Yeah, it's. It's, uh, as a historical movie, it's it's a fine looking piece. It's the pace of it, I think. Any other, if, if even go back to sort of golden age of Hollywood, we had those Betty Davis movies, you know, The Virgin Queen, or oh, what's the other one? Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, you know, with Errol Flynn. You get a bit of swashbuckling in there as well as all that lot, but you get this this great dialogue. You get the superb Betty Davis, as I say, and then jump forward to the 1990s the early 2000s you get elizabeth the two elizabeth movies with kate blanchett yeah but then that's more sort of like blood and thunder isn't it that one it's it's all gung-ho action this very very wordy stage roots are evident but as i say the performances can't be faulted robert shaw i think does historical bloody well you know most people know him as quint or, yeah. or or Grant from from Russia with Love, you know the hard nosed action man, but I think he his portrayal of Henry VIII is absolutely superb here, you know, and especially in the two handers that he has with Paul Schofield, the way they bounce off each other when they're talking in the garden, and he goes from gentle encouragement towards you know a dear friend to arguing with him and and, and you know just losing his temper completely and then going back to gentle conversation it, it, it just does this whole range of emotions in that five minute sequence yeah um, the volatility of a despot basically yeah, he true. portrays completely accurately mm. yeah let's mention some of the others let's, let's talk about sir thomas moore let's talk about um paul schofield he, he played the role didn't he i think on stage for many many years before this Yes, and yeah, I believe so. Surprisingly, I don't think he was first choice for the this movie adaptation. No, the, and there was a few other people that actually, because of the notices and respect that the player had, mm. actually lobbied to try and get it, even if they weren't uh, immediately on the list of consideration. I mean, I I believe I read somewhere um, that Charlton Heston lobbied to be to have the role. He which, did remake um, it, though, didn't he, a few years later? There's a TV yeah. version that's more... Um, well, <laughs> we're going to keep using that word and we're going to pick up on it. Uh, it's, it's, it's more faithful to the stage play because in the Heston version, uh, there is a narrator who is in the stage in the stage version. And, and what this particular adaptation has done has taken the narrator's role and split it amongst other characters, such as the boatman and a couple of the others. Right, yeah. So that's where you were saying that you know there's certain things missing. There is a whole character, and like you said, the, the Spanish ambassador's missing as well. I'm trying to remember myself who else was up for it. Even the Cardinal Wolsey was going to be somebody else because Fred Zinnemann was a major Hollywood director, wasn't he? It was High Noon and From Here to Eternity, he was better known for. And obviously, he, he was probably lobbying for some real Hollywood talent. Because Paul Schofield was an unknown in in terms of movie making, he was more a stage actor. Oh, absolutely, he was. Yeah, I think you know, respected in his field, but certainly not considered to be a a, a choice to lead a movie. And I believe from one I was watching, seeing the opening credits, you know, he's he is 
one of those, um, you know, that is like six on the bill where it's and oh, Paul Schofield rather than, you know, it's, it's got, yeah. yeah, he's not top billing, even though he's the star role and playing the, the you know, almost the, the lead, you know, he's playing the lead role. He's not actually got the top billing. He is an and Paul Schofield, <laughs> you know, sort of six down the line. So they've given him that sort of special nudge to be the, playing the lead part, mm. but not above, not above the likes of, um, Robert Shaw and, and Leo McKern even Leo and McKern, um, Orson yeah. Welles yeah now this is John Hurt's first major screen role isn't it I believe I believe so yeah yeah yeah. interesting isn't it because this is 1966 five years later would be Temerlington Place yeah and then it would just be well John Hurt I mean I don't think he became a major major player until after The Elephant Man you know, I think you're right, yeah. I think that was where it really took off. I think his Rillington Place performance did actually stake a, a hold for being noticed yeah. by by directors and agents that he you know, did have performance in mm-hmm. him that was worth drawing out by the right director. But I don't think it was until The Elephant Man, until he, he truly showed his, his range and the strength that he had yeah. um, as far as, as far as, but the sort of the um, the business is concerned as far as them recognising the bigwigs. So yeah, but you know it's good to good to see him in an earlier role, so fresh faced, uh, you know, especially considering how we remember him more recently as the War Doctor from Doctor Who. Yes, um, which is you know sort of more more pits in his face than uh, than the moon. Um, <laughs> Um, so that you know different ends of the spectrum with his age there, but obviously his performances. A great all the way through. He just was a great actor. It's nineteen sixty six. It's swinging sixties. We are talking, you know, Carnaby Street and and that sort of thing. This is the same year as Georgie Girl and Alfie. Yeah. So let me just. I'll just run through the the, the other nominees for Best Picture. Obviously, it won. It won the Best Picture and it won Best Director for Fred Zinnemann. You ready for this? The other nominees that year. It was the thirty ninth Academy Awards was Alfie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Sand Pebbles, and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Strange little line-up there. It's, there's nothing notable. Possibly that the only, from a British point of view, Alfie obviously stands out. But Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was Richard Burton, wasn't it? Elizabeth Taylor. Um, yeah, and Sand, Sand Pebbles had um, Attenborough in it, didn't it? I think, um, I think I, it was Steve, right? Steve McQueen's in that, I think. It's yeah, Robert Wise. Richard who Attenborough, yeah, I it's Robert Wise who directed uh, Sound of Music. Yeah. So, Best Director, Zinnemann won Best Director. Also in contention, Michelangelo Antonioni. And yeah, I said that right. Michelangelo Antonioni for Blow Up. Oh, blimey. Claude Lelouch for A Man and a Woman. Richard Brooks for The Professionals, which was a Western, and Mike Nichols for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, I believe this is the only example up till about 2012, I think, where it was nominated for every single category it was eligible for. Wow. It's the only example of it up to this point. So it's something like 13 or 14 different categories it was nominated for and interestingly it's 1966 and they were still giving out awards for best cinematography for colour and black and white movies there were two separate awards and best costume design for colour movies and black and white movies as well 
Well, that's yeah. I thought I thought that this would have been over the cusp for when they were yeah. they were no longer doing that. Yeah. But obviously, you know, I've been been wrong. Also, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Also, I was just saying, yeah. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave did get nominated this year for Best Actress, but not for this movie because she's in it. Blink and you'll miss it. It's a cameo, isn't it, for Vanessa Redgrave? Yeah, I think she was meant she was meant to have her, her name removed from the. It wasn't. She was meant to be unlisted as far as yes. um, being in this film. I, I believe. Yeah, she so. she didn't get paid either. She said no. It's just for the fun of it because she was going to play, I believe, the daughter, the Susanna York role. Yes, but I think other commitments, like on stage or something, meant she couldn't. But she wanted to be part of it, so she agreed to play. Is it Anne Boleyn? Isn't it? Uh, yes, yes, I believe. Yeah, yeah that's who she was. She was playing. Yeah. Well, this year, so, mm, sorry, this year Vanessa Redgrave got nominated for Morgan suitable case for treatment, but so did Lynn Redgrave for Georgie Girl. This is the same year as Georgie Girl. So, uh, and then of course we have Corinne Redgrave in in this film with her. Yes. Well, not not in the same scenes, but still, he was in he was in this. So, you know, it's it's their year. Bloody um, Redgrave's got their fingers in everything, haven't they? Can't can't, yeah. can't keep out of it. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's some heavyweight names at the Academy Awards. You know, Best Actor, yeah. Paul Schofield won Best Actor. He was up against Richard Burton for Virginia Woolf, Alan Arkin for The Russians Are Coming, Michael Caine in Alfie, and Steve McQueen in The Sand Pebbles. You know, he'd he done bloody well to win up against it's, all it's, that. It's no wonder he didn't turn up, because he probably didn't expect to win. <laughs> Did he not turn up to collect his award for that one? No, no, uh, I, I read that... Um, that Wendy Hillow played his his wife. Um, mm. She had to go collect his award oh, for him. Right. Well, he was obviously so. not expecting too much. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised <laughs> considering who he was up against. What's lacking in this film apart from a good car chase? You know, what what are we missing here? I think it's that there's, there's the the earnestness and the the attempt to have the historical accuracy of the story means that it's f- flat really because the the story although important it isn't necessarily cinematic ex- ex- exciting or cinematic yeah. it's you know probably make for a really good wikipedia entry but <laughs> um i'm not sure that the, the subject matter is the best for a, a two-hour film i mean you know you you could maybe do i think as a as a book perhaps better because you can put in more detail about what was happening in the country at the time and uh, the political landscape and stuff which you can't capture maybe on screen as a play potentially again because you're going there with the expectation of, of more heavy dialogue and this two people double headers you know i think that, that perhaps it lends itself a bit more to that being pared down and you're not you know you, you concentrate more on that whereas as a film yeah i just think that maybe there's the subject matter isn't treated as in the right way, or it's just not there in the first place. I mean, you saying you've seen the the another adaptation of it, part of it, and, yeah, um, yeah. and if that's done better because it's got the extra bits in the narrator and the Spanish ambassador, then maybe there's some choices that were made with this that have, have, have sanitized it a bit and lost lost a bit of interest mm. in the path. Really, it's. I mean, I was in. I was happy I'd seen it based upon the strength of the performances and, and seeing the cinematography. But at the end of it, it did leave me feeling that, the, unfortunately, the, the story hadn't been presented in the best possible way. Yeah, you saying that it would probably make a better book 
you know, to, to, an adaptation of a of a book. I, I, I suddenly remembered there was a TV adaptation of Wolf Hall, Hilary Mantel's novel. Oh yes, yes. I think it was last year, the year before. Mark Rylance was in it, and Damien Lewis was playing Henry VIII. But that chronicles the life of the Leo McKern character, Thomas Cromwell. So it's all of this period. You know, it's from. Thomas Cromwell's birth right through to the whole of the, the Tudor period that he was involved in. So I haven't actually seen it, but I'm assuming it touches upon this story at some point throughout that novel and the TV adaptation. So I might have to have a little look to see how that was handled or whether it yeah. is just a little side story because it's not all right. You know, we, we know the relevance and the importance of Henry VIII becoming head of the Anglican church but how much time is it devote, has, has been devoted to it in, in the, the novel and the TV adaptation of Wolf Hall? It'd be interesting to have a little look. Yeah, maybe it's maybe that as a book and as um, a, a TV adaptation, maybe that's more interesting in a way because it's um, it, the, the central figure in that is somebody who had more to them. They were, in some senses, a villain, mm. and they're always more interesting and... In this case, you, you're basically sort of portraying a, a character who is more saintly. Yes. In, and, who, you know, literally we got made a saint. I was going to um, say, ironically, yeah. yes, he did. Yeah, he got made Yeah, <laughs> and this is this is a thing. I mean, you, you somebody who is more saintly and, and, and Pious, pure in that sense, yeah. and, you know, not necessarily more interesting isn't a saint. I mean, you know. Um, I noticed that they haven't made a big budget, you know, adaptation of the, of the lives of, Mother Teresa and, and such like. So um, obviously the people who, if they're if they're a saintly figure, they usually want to just concentrate on the good parts of life and not portray the bad parts. Yeah. And and that means that you sanitise them to the extent where perhaps they're two dimensional and a bit dull as a, as a character. You need a good villain, don't you? Sometimes <laughs> in a movie and there's. He, he's taking on the whole of the royal, you know, the royal household. There's no particular. He's not actually fighting Henry VIII. He's fighting Parliament. He's fighting the High Court judges. It's it's just no sort of one-on-one battle here. And it's as you say, it's it's just too nice. That's <laughs> probably what it is. He's just too nice. Yeah, there's more there's more dramatic tension and an argument when he's in discussion with the suitor to his daughter yeah. um, than there is to, you know, to the, the side that is potentially going to be the, oh, actually it ends up being the end of his life. He's more, you know, he gets into more, more of a debate with this young suitor to his daughter but than he even, does with the, the judges and, and Henry VIII and such like. So, yeah, and even yeah. he ends up changing his religious views to be on his side. You know, I think he was yeah. Lutheran, wasn't he, and ends up sort of sticking up for the Catholic point of view. It's it's a funny old movie. Can you sort of class it as a sixties movie? I'm trying to think if there are any other sort of examples, historical movies that were about at this time that are notable. This one's um, a few years later. There, there is Cromwell, which Richard I actually um, yeah, know, I actually like that more definitely. Yeah. That is um, a better a more. It's a film that I enjoy more. Um, might not be a better film in 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 terms of the amount of cast with the great performances, and although it's, it does have a great cast, actually. Yeah. But um, it didn't get the same amount of notice as, as this, but it's one that's got certain, certainly got a lot more 
drama to it. Yeah, and of a thousand days towards the end of the sixties, I think about sixty-eight, sixty-nine, and and probably just sort of cashing in on the success of this, you know, a few years previously. Uh, yeah, it's it's strange because we're, we're smack bang, as I say, in the middle of swinging sixties, so. You get in the Michael Caine and the Terence Stamp type movies. It's the end of the kitchen sink drama period. So it's the same year as we said as Georgie Girl and Alfie. We're going into, I don't know, it's, it's towards the Summer of Love will be a couple of years later. It's, it's a very bizarre period and it's a very bizarre choice, I think, to actually... It's, it's worthy of winning, I think, the best picture. But... I don't think it had a lot of major competition up against it. There was no way Alfie was going to win Best Picture that year, that's for sure. No, no. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was... That, again, was, was more, you know, adapted theatre piece. Yeah, another piece. one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so a funny year. 66 has got a lot to answer for. Yeah. Yeah, I think this doesn't doesn't shout out 60s uh, as a as an era. It's, it's not... doesn't have a particular... 60s um stamp on it as no. far as how it's treated history um you know it's not it's not done stylistically in the you know in the same way imagine imagine them trying to tell a historical epic epic in the um style of of georgia girl you know with that sort of the the, the pop um approach to you know well, them, yeah could you imagine the, I mean, the, yeah. the only sort of classic sort of 60s icon that we've got there is vanessa redgrave but could you imagine if Terence Stamp was playing, say, the Nigel Davenport role or, or the John, John Hurt role even. Yeah, something like that. That would be a trick that they may have tried to do. But I think Fred Zinnemann, being old school Hollywood, has sort of taken this quite rever- reverentially, you know, and it's like, right, I'm going to do a big screen adaptation of what is considered one of the greatest plays in the last four or five years to hit the West End and Broadway, yeah. and he's treated it like a Hollywood blockbuster, so he's got in Orson Welles, and, you know, some gravitas there, and they haven't fallen into that trap of putting in some of those familiar faces from Swinging London. That I'm, I'm sure that's what they would have done. You know, yeah, and stylistically, they've not brought in any elements that were, were part of the sort of the newest cinema that was coming out, and the way that, you know, like George Girl and such, um, they've, they've not gone for that that or even some of the realism yeah. that you've got in some of the the films that had been previously like you, you say the kitchen sinks and the the alfies and, and things you yeah. you've not got that they're they're still treating this as being something that is of a higher order and that's maybe a maybe a downfall maybe that's where something like wolf hall humanizes the people a bit more and, and treats them more as as everyday people in in a dramatic situation historical mm. situation yeah, I don't want listeners to go away from this thinking that it's a bad movie. It's, it, it, as we say, the acting is is top notch. The cinematography is superb, and obviously, the original source material adapted by the by the playwright himself is it, is faultless. You know, it's it's poetic. It's, it's it, but it just it's a it just drags. There's there's just something not clicking in this movie for me, and I think you're pretty much of the same opinion from what I can gather. Absolutely, yeah. There's there's something missing, and it's not in the acting or you know the direction um, or the cinematography. They're all well up there. It's it's unfortunately 
it's it's we often I think watch films and they're greater than the sum of their parts mm. and this unfortunately seems to be the opposite where yeah. it's it, on paper this should be amazing mm. uh, and unfortunately um there are some very um noteworthy and respectable parts to this film but unfortunately it's not not it's not fantastic as a film it doesn't actually meet um its full potential bit lukewarm isn't it yeah Yeah, unfortunately yeah and it's the first time in 30 plus reviews that we've sat down to talk about where i think we've actually had this opinion i think we've pretty much enthused about most of the stuff we've been reviewing yeah i know howard's end i was i was a bit picky over the over the the plot elements Mm. and stuff but it was not in the same extent of this i think i think with this it's yeah, if I maybe if I if I had watched it more recently, like yourself, mm. um, maybe I would have shied away from it. <laughs> um, but but I think it's still got enough in it to actually um, be noteworthy as oh. um, a classic British film. It's just that, it, as I say, it doesn't really fulfil what it could have done, um, given all the different elements that it had going in its favour. Yeah, and I think that you know. Basically, I think that comes down to Thomas Moore. I think it's his fault. I just think he didn't have an interesting enough life, really. Yeah, <laughs> blame the source material, that's right. Yeah. Um, if you're going to watch this movie for any particular reason, I would say it's for Robert Shaw's performance. Uh, Absolutely. He yeah. brings he brings the, the only real bit of life to this film mm. is Robert Shaw yeah. being the, the maniacal despot. Yeah. Um, and I'll, t- I'll tell you who I, who I do love dearly and she's not in it anywhere near long enough for me is Eutha Joyce I, I just love the woman as an actress anyway um, yeah. and she is going to crop up into the Hall of Fame before long because there's a few movies I've got at the back of my mind that have got her uh, in it you know pre-Men jo- About the House and George and Mildred George and Mildred the movie yeah, yeah. George and Mildred the movie no it's not George yeah. <laughs> no 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 <laughs> there's some 60s stuff that she appears in as a as a straight actress and she is absolutely fantastic Unfortunately, this is only going to get three stars on Letterbox for me. In your rating system, how are we going to advise people to watch this? Well, I would I would say that you know on a on a, a rainy bank holiday, um, it could be worth you know, sitting down and watching it if you've not seen it. But um, unfortunately, I wouldn't recommend you um, going out of your way unless you particularly want to. Um, sort of experience the, the performances of some of these luminaries that are in it because unfortunately two hours spent on on this for somebody normally wouldn't be worth going out of your way for in any great way so it's just catch it if you can really yeah yeah it's, it, it's for oscar completionists as well you know if it's one that you haven't seen just just to fill in the gap and as i say just just take a look it's like cinematography is great the acting superb lukewarm i think is an ideal ideal adjective for this movie now coming up is going to be my choice for you i'm going to take a short break here mate because i've got three in mind and i need to think what one we're going to go for <laughs> <laughs> what, what the what the listeners don't realize is i'm i'm left for 45 minutes while you will think about it <laughs> well i go and watch so, them <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then get back to me i'm still sat here waiting yeah <laughs> back after this <laughs>
Okay, Stephen, next time. I'm pretty sure you, you like this movie. I remember you reviewing this in a previous incarnation on a previous podcast that you were involved in. We're going back just post-war again to 1946. It's our first Powell and Pressburger movie starring David Niven, Kim Hunter. Oh, great. You know what it is. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's got a brief appearance of Richard Attenborough in there. Bona Colliano, we need to talk about him when we get to him. Marius Goring and Roger Livesey obviously are in this. It's a matter of life and death, also known as Stairway to Heaven, I believe, in the US. Yes, this is, um, yeah, welcome indeed. I won't say much more than that, but yes, it's welcome to have another opportunity to talk about this film. I think so. I mean, we need to talk Powell and Pressburger anyway. We, I could have gone right back. I could have gone to some of the early 40 stuff and we could have worked through them chronologically. But I think some of their early stuff's a bit hit and miss. We're going to possibly pick on the five or six absolutely staggering movies that they did make, like The Red Shoes. and The like, ones where they'd hit the stride, basically. Yeah, Colonel Blimp, Black Narcissus. You know, there's three off the top of my head. So let's go for one that people might be more familiar with. One that I think has got the best story out of all the Powell and Pressburgers because there is just drama, there's comedy in this. Um, an interesting choice of cinematography and colour here and black Absolutely, and white. Absolutely, yeah. How it all which, works. Which, it breaks, breaks the question, which category would they put this in for an Oscar nomination then? Would they put it in the colour or the black and white? I mean, does it, get to, does it get to be both? That's true, yeah, because it's, yeah, it's, it's like um, The Wizard of Oz, isn't it? It, it changes part of the way through. Yeah. Uh, but welcome a... to have some David Niven. I thought we were going to have to, um, you know, wait until we did um, Casino Royale to or the Pink Panther. Get... Yeah, I was going to wait till the yeah. Pink Panther because he's the uh, he's the the second lead in in the first Pink Panther movie. Let's give it a go. I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. Okay, so matter of life and death. Next time, Stephen. It's been a pleasure as always, my friend. Thank you very much. See you very soon, Tada. Take care. Positive sha. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir.